How vast of a difference are we talking in terms of overall greenhouse gas emissions? The number that we use for beef is on the order of 30 kilograms of CO2 equivalents per kilogram of boneless beef produced. And most of plant-based foods are on the order of one. A lot of them are, are less than one. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks so much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. School is going to be in session today. I will tell you that right off the bat. And what we're going to be learning is how everything that you eat affects the environment. Talking about your breakfast and your lunch and your dinner and everything in between. Every single food choice we make has an impact on the environment. And on today's show, we are going to be comparing the impact of plant foods to meat and meat production. It's going to be a really interesting conversation. And my guest, our professor, if you will, is going to show us how high greenhouse gas emission diets, the diets that produce the most greenhouse gases, how eating those diets increase your risk of dying from some of the leading chronic diseases out there, including heart disease and cancer. And it's not just a small increase either. We are talking about a significant increase in the risk of death with high greenhouse gas emission diets. And to teach us all of this, Our professor for the day will be Dr. Martin Heller. He works with the University of Michigan. Amazing, amazing man. For the past two decades, you will hear, he has been studying the connection between food and the environment and greenhouse gases and climate change. It's all very interesting. And speaking of which, have you heard about this? It goes right in line. He and I are going to be talking about this as well. Burger King is changing up the diet of some of its cattle in an effort to curb greenhouse gas emissions. The cattle, they're being fed lemongrass, about 100 grams of it every day. And the researchers that Burger King has been working with say they expect that the lemongrass will cut hazardous methane production. Let me put that in quotes hazardous methane production by up to 33%. Now, this beef is being tested only in five restaurants right now, and it's being billed, I can't make this up, it is being billed as the reduced methane emissions beef whopper. Meanwhile, Oxford researchers have also concluded that eating a vegan diet is the, quote, single best way to reduce a person's carbon footprint. Those researchers had concluded that ditching meat and dairy can slash your environmental impact by as much as 73%. So we're going to be talking about Burger King's lemongrass experiment here. What is the truth behind this? 
Dr. Heller is going to weigh in with his expert opinion. Plus, on the show today, we will be opening up the doctor's mailbag when Dr. Neil Barnard and Dr. Jim Loomis join us to answer your questions. Going to be answering questions on everything from cholesterol to vitamins and supplements to even cheese being a carrier for COVID-19. Is that possible? Well, we're going to find out when we open up the doctor's mailbag in just a little while. But first, school is in session as we compare the impact of plant foods and meat and how everything you eat affects the environment. We've talked about keto diets on the podcast. We've talked about elimination diets. We've talked about vegan diets ad nauseum. We've talked about the Atkins diet, but never have we thought about diets in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And so that is why I am thrilled today to welcome to the exam room, Dr. Martin Heller. He is the Senior Research Specialist with the Center for Sustainable Systems at the University of Michigan. Dr. Heller, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chuck. Uh, you have a presentation coming up at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine called Eating for the Planet, the Environmental Impacts of Dietary Choices. And correct me if I'm wrong, but every single choice that we make as far as what it is that we eat has an impact on the environment. Yeah, that, that's true. I mean, and in fact, everything we consume as a society es essentially has an impact on the environment. And that's that's kind of what the the field that I've found myself in, um, industrial ecology, it's often called, uh, tends to look at it. What those, what's those energy and material inputs are, that go into producing products or services that we use, um, you know, as a society in our economy. Um, I've happened to focus on applying those methods to looking at food and, and agricultural production. And you've been studying this for, I believe you said, two decades now. Yeah, on and off, but yes, um, for a while, you know, we, we, we started very broadly looking at sustainability in the U.S. food system and kind of identifying a little bit where we're at. We've looked at some specific food products over the years and more recently have been looking at um, how environmental impacts play out in our dietary choices, how the, the collection of foods that we eat, either as a society or as, as individuals, um, dictates essentially what the carbon footprint of our food system is. Uh, you come on the show at such a good time uh, because I'm going to talk to you about something very timely with Burger King in, in just a minute, but let's also kind of talk a little bit further about that carbon footprint because I think that the majority of us still think when it comes to protecting the environment, that means uh, using public transportation and driving less and saving electricity. But how much does our dietary choices contribute to environmental impact compared to those other measures like driving less? Yeah, sure. You know, um, I mean, if we look at that question globally, um, it, it kind of depends on on who you're asking and what some of the pieces that that get pulled into that. You know, there's some question marks like a lot of the stuff going on with land use change in in the rainforest and how exactly you account to that for that contributing. But globally, food systems agriculture is on the order of thirty to forty percent of total greenhouse gas emissions. 
if we look at a at a you know at a fossil fuel intensive economy like the U.S., it tends to be a bit smaller, um, but you know it's still on the order of probably 10 to 15 percent of our total greenhouse gas emissions. And then when we look at as ourselves as individuals and think about the kinds of impacts that we can easily make with our choices, it, it ranks right up there. What about in our dietary choices? What may be the most sinister food that we can eat? We've, we've heard maybe it could be beef. Is that true? Is beef the worst food for the environment? Yeah, I, well, so if we're maintaining this, this sort of um, limited greenhouse gas emission lens, uh, beef comes out rather high, in fact, on the top in terms of emissions per unit of edible food that we get out. And we, we can look at that a lot of different ways, whether you're talking about a, a kilogram of food or a calorie or some of the, the nutrients that it's providing. Regardless of the way you slice it, beef is usually pretty high. There's a, there's a number for, of reasons for that, if we want to unpack it a little bit. One is, is simply the fact that, like, like all animal, consuming animals were eating farther up the food chain, right? So those animals require feed. There's some inefficiency in converting that feed into the, the animal food product that we consume. So you know, there's, that's where we're, that's sort of eating higher up the food chain thing comes in. And those inefficiencies happen to be um, much higher. So we get less food energy out per unit of food energy that we put in to cows than we do to chickens or pork. Or if we look at alternative things like insects and fish that, that have very high efficiency ratios. So that's one big piece. Cows just take a lot of food. They have to be, they're, they're big animals. They're alive for a long time before we harvest them. Um, the other important piece is actually related to why cows are part of our agriculture to begin with, why they're part of, of our food system, in that cows have the ability, as all ruminant animals do, to convert um, roughages, forages, that you and I can't, can't get any food energy out of, they have these complex stomachs that have a bunch of complicated um, microbiota in them, a bunch of microorganisms that help them break down those, those forages and lignans into things that the cow can then get energy from. Um, so, you know, that's a good thing. It's an opportunity for, for us as humans to utilize um, land spaces that otherwise can't grow other crops, you know, and it's a big reason why cows are part of our our agriculture to begin with. Like I said, the unfortunate um, consequence of that, a, a byproduct of that, of that process is the production of, of methane. So some of the microorganisms in that gut as a byproduct to their own um, metabolism produce methane. And, you know, if we look, methane happens to be a very potent greenhouse gas. It, it, it has a lot higher impact on the order of 25 times that of CO2. So that's where we start talking about carb, cow burps, generally more burps than farts, but you know, the fart jokes uh, go, go a bit farther. <laughs> so that's often where it comes back to. But that's, that's the other big piece. That's the other big contributor that cows make that really set them aside 
um, from other other foods that that we might consume. And and I mean, let's let's dive a little bit deeper into this, just kind of in lay terms. How substantial are these methane emissions? We'll just put it kindly uh, in terms of the erosion of the environment. Like how detrimental is it really to our climate? Yeah. So, I mean, I think probably the best way to look at this, right, maybe you can help me think about how, how we can we can portray that. I mean, we, we can look at how they're contributing to our current diet, what their contributions are to the current diet. How detrimental are they to the environment. I mean, from my perspective, we're in the midst of a climate crisis at this point. And I I don't think that particularly here in the US and probably globally, we've really stepped up to the fact of just how much of a crisis that is. And we as a society need to make urgent immediate action to to attempt to reduce our current emissions to hopefully get us to a place where we can expect a, a somewhat stable um, climate in in our in in my children's future. Um, so, you know, methane is a part of that. Animal systems are you know agriculture, food production, and livestock are a part of that. They're not the whole picture. You know, I, I don't mean to suggest that changing our diet is going to solve the climate crisis, but it's it's a part of it. And the crisis that we're in is such that we need to be taking action in as many parts as we can simultaneously to make um, reductions quickly and swiftly. That's that's my personal um, take on it. And more recently, we have seen from Burger King, their take is that essentially cows are going to toot us into non-existence. And so they have come out and they have decided that we are going to try to feed some of our cattle lemongrass. And theoretically, this 100 grams of lemongrass a day will reduce their methane emissions by a third. Now, once you get past the juvenile humor aspect of this, I got to ask you, how much validity is there to this science and will it even make an impact? Yeah. So this, this has been something that, that, um, that animal scientists have been looking at for a long time, um, changing rations, adding things to the rations of, of ruminant animals to try to reduce this methane emission um, issue. Um, I, I think that that's relevant and important science, you know, I mean, regardless of, of, well, we're not going to be able to change our diet quick enough that, you know, it's not important to, to also try to make efforts to reduce those emissions um, at their source. So it's, it's certainly important science, you know. Whether we should um, get all, all enthusiastic about it and start doing synchronized swimming on melting ice glaciers is a, is a different question. Um, and if we actually take that that thirty three percent reduction in methane emissions and look at some of the fine prints in it, so the studies they're basing that on are actually looking at emissions just over the three or four months at the very end, what we call the finishing stage of raising cattle. Um, and um, it turns out that in, it, 
over the entire life cycle of raising that animal, which includes maintaining the, the herd, maintaining its mama and papa that, that have to be there in order to, to produce the animal that we harvest, right, that we consume. Those, those, that finishing stage is only about 10% of the total methane emissions. Okay, so we're talking about a 33% reduction of 10% of the total methane emissions. And if we want to then take it up to the carbon footprint level, while the methane emissions are important, you know, a dominant and important part of the overall carbon footprint of producing beef, it's still 56%. Growing the feed, um, other contributors um, come into play as well. Methane from, from their, their manure handling the manure. So by the time that we multiply those through, 33% of 10% of, of 56% of the carbon footprint, it's, we're really talking about a less than 2% reduction um, in the carbon footprint, in actual greenhouse gas emissions of producing beef. Yeah, that seems like clever marketing then on their <laughs> part. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, I've, I've seen blog posts all over the place where people are pointing this out. You know, it, I'm, I'm not unique in, in identifying some of that. Um, yeah. So again, you know, I don't, I don't want to suggest that those kinds of efforts aren't worthwhile, but there's a bit of hyperbole going on in, in how they're, they're marketing it, surely. And, you know, I think the challenge is what it seems that they're, asking people to do is don't don't look into this further don't investigate it we're solving the problem right Mm -hmm. rather than encouraging people to actually consider their diet you know don't worry you can continue to eat burger king hamburgers it's not a problem we're (laughs) going to take care of it you know i i wonder if they are charging a premium for the reduced methane (laughs) emissions beef whopper which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue either no, not quite. <laughs> they do charge a premium for the Impossible Whopper, which I, I should say, you know, does have a significant reduction in, in greenhouse gas emissions relative to beef. You, you would say that the, the savings there would far out, uh, outpace the savings for the uh, reduced methane emissions beef Whopper? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, so just to put those, some yeah. of those things in perspective, Chuck, you know, we're talking about this boils down to less than 2% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Even if we switched from beef to pork, it's like an 83% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Beef to chicken, 87% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. And beef to, uh, to plant-based um, protein sources, even greater than that, you know. We did a we we did a study on the Beyond Burger and uh, shucks I'm not going to have the exact number in my mouth but it, it's it's around 95 percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from wow. beef to to um, Beyond Burger so I think it's important to keep some of those choices in in perspective right yeah. Yeah. And, and I see, I'm looking, I got a preview of your presentation at uh, ICNM coming up and you have this beautiful slide uh, that shows the various protein sources and how they compare for uh, greenhouse gas emissions to each other, you know, beef and, and lamb and things of that nature way at the high end of the chart. And then you have right. your more plant-based options further down the list. Uh, what are some other foods other than uh, beef that are really high up there on that list? Yeah. 
So the way that we've been investigating this is we've linked a lot of those environmental impacts associated with producing the food. And, and you know, just to be clear, we're looking primarily at the farm gate emissions, at what's associated with just producing those commodities. It gets a lot more challenging to try to track everything that goes on with processing and packaging and distribution of the, you know, 7,000 plus um, foods that show up in in our our U.S. diet. Um, so we're primarily looking at just the the agricultural production of those commodities, but then we're linking that information to the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey um, individual self-selected diets. So we're losing using data from the 2005 to 2010 cohort of this ongoing survey where we ask people one one day what they ate. And if you do that, that survey with enough um, frequency and with the right amount of people, we can say, okay, this is representative of the distribution of the U.S. diet. So we've made those linkages and then we're able to then rank the, um, the, the U, typical U.S. diets by their, their carbon footprint, by their greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and then the way that we've chosen to sort of look at it is slice it up into, into um, quintiles of the population. How does the top 20% compare to the bottom 20% of, um, of carbon footprint of those diets, right? Um, that, that top 20%, the highest emitters, are contributing 46% to the total greenhouse gas emissions um, associated with, with all of our diets. The bottom is is 6%. So like an eightfold difference between the top and bottom. That's kind of the, the, the range that we're looking at. Do you wake up in the morning and just have a big smile on your face knowing that you get to study this day in and day out? Because what you're talking about to me, it's just so fascinating. <laughs> well, Chuck, it's like everything else. After you've been in it for a while, even the fascinating becomes a bit mundane, right? <laughs> it's it's fun. It's fun that people are are starting to get excited about it. Yes, that's true. It's um it's it's rewarding that that the conversation is happening. Let me ask you about uh water usage in terms of beef production as well. We've heard that it takes thousands and thousands of gallons just to produce a single pound of ground beef. Is yeah. that assessment accurate? What have you gleaned over your years of studying? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we talked a lot about greenhouse gas emissions and, and I, I kind of got on my soapbox about how important I think those um that issue is currently, but it's certainly not the only environmental impact that um that our diets contribute to, that, that food contributes to. So another big piece is water use. There, there's water scarcity in regions uh, across the globe. Um and this is something that folks have been associated with associating with dietary choice for a while. But one thing that we added to that analysis is recognizing that water use isn't the same in every location. Uh, Using a gallon of water in California has a much different impact on other users, both human and, and ecosystem users of that water than it does a gallon of water consumed in Wisconsin, where, you know, water is prevalent. So we're adding this this water scarcity metric that's that's very regional that it, that we're looking at at the watershed level is that it differs across the country, especially you know a country with um, 
as much diversity in, in climate as, as the U.S. Um, and then connecting that up with, with our best understanding of where those commodity crops are grown across the U.S. and then aggregating that back up to a national level and linking it again with these same self-selected individual diets. Um, certainly, beef comes out at the top in this water scarcity metric as well. I mean, yes, it's true that it requires a lot of water to, to grow uh, beef. And most of that is coming in the form of irrigation of, of crops that they're consuming. Um, it's, it's far less uh, about the water that the animals actually drink, but, um, you know, dominated by far with irrigation. Um, but we also consume a lot of, of beef in the U.S. Um, the interesting thing, how looking at water scarcity differs from looking at carbon footprint, is there are a lot of plant-based foods that also require a lot of water and typically are produced in, in relatively water-scarce regions of the U.S. We think about the Central Valley of California, right, where all of our almonds come from, where a lot of the vegetables and fruits that we consume in the U.S. come from. Um, so whereas, you know, our, our animal-based foods, a lot of the feeds that, that, they're, um, that they're consuming, corn and soybeans, while, yes, there is some, some water use going on there, they tend to be happening in um, less water-scarce regions. So they don't get as large of, a, of, a, um, a, of an increase when we look at this additional characterization, right? Right. Um, so whereas when we're thinking about carbon footprint, pretty much any shift to a plant-based food um, from animal-based foods, especially from beef, um, looks positive. When we're talking about water use, um, it, it's more of a depend scenario. Things like tree nuts that that are water intensive, um, you know, almonds, walnuts, pecans, cashews, um, tend to have a water a, a large water scarcity impact per kilogram of of nuts provided. Um, so that that's it's it's an important nuance. And then you know the same thing happens when we look at at fruits and vegetables as well. Let's kind of tie it into what the wheelhouse of this show is all about, and that is nutrition. Another point that you're going to raise here in your presentation is that these diets that are uh, high greenhouse gas emission diets uh, are actually detrimental, by and large, to human health as well, significantly increasing the, uh, the risk of death from cardiovascular disease and things of that nature. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure, and I, you know, I think this is something that your guests on the show have talked about in 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 the in the past that these animal-based foods do have higher risks of of a number of um, non-communicable diseases, like um, you know, like cardiovascular disease and cancer mortality, and uh, you know, things of that nature, stroke. So what we, we looked at this a couple different ways. Again, you know, I remember I was talking about differentiating between the high emission diets and the low emission diets. So we, we kind of aggregate those those top and bottom 20% and and looking we're looking at those as a group and comparing um, first of all the, the diet quality, usually using the healthy eating index, which is really just a, a measure of how closely a diet um, matches with dietary recommendations, right? 
And most of our diets in the U.S. are, are fairly poor. With a, we generally score lower than 50 on a on a hundred point scale. Um, and we found that those top and bottom ones are right in that range, but significantly different, statistically significantly different um, with the, the low emission diets having a higher um, dietary quality than the, upper, um, than the upper diets. But then we also did some epidemiological modeling um, and you know, that borrows from a lot of the, a lot of the epidemiology studies that link um, you know, dietary intake to actual disease mortality. And again, looking at those top and bottom and found that the, the high emission diets have a 28% higher risk of cardiovascular and, and cancer disease mortality than those lower emission diets. So, um, it, you know, it's what we would expect to see based on, on what we hear about the impacts of animal-based foods and, and how we expected the this carbon footprint distribution to to play out, but you know it's it's always great when the, the numbers actually support what your um, hypothesis is, right? Absolutely. Um, let, let's talk a little bit more about these low emission diets, plant foods in particular. We you touched on this a little bit earlier in the interview, but I'm wondering if we can do maybe uh, a head to head comparison, not an apples to oranges comparison mm. here, but mm. uh, say a, a meat to spinach comparison or some other vegetable. How vast of a difference are we talking in terms of overall greenhouse gas emissions, that totality yeah. of everything that goes into it? Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, just just as sort of a rough number, it's on the order of a factor of 25 to 30. So, you know, the, the, the number that we use for beef is on the order of 30 kilograms of CO2 equivalents per kilogram of boneless beef produced. And most of the plant-based foods are on the order of one. Um, you know, so, and it could be one to three, maybe. Um, a lot of them are, are less than one, you know, a lot of legumes, beans. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a reasonable comparison on, on the, a, a factor of 25 to 30 um, difference. Of course, you know, spinach and beef don't provide you with the same nutrition. So no. we have to be careful about making that, as you said, an apple to apple comparison. Um, but that's where looking at, at whole complete diets is, is perhaps a, an easier way to make comparisons. When you first began looking at this type of data 20 some odd years ago at this point, um, were you surprised at just how much of a difference there was between the, the two? I mean, I'm sure that you suspected perhaps that uh, plant-based foods uh, were going to be on the lower end of the spectrum, but we're talking about a like really significant difference here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, it's, as I was alluding to earlier in our conversation, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a strange irony of, of the fact that these ruminant animals have become part of our agriculture because of this special, this special function that they have, right? They're able to eat, eat grass, um, you know, and, and, you know, hundreds, thousands of years ago when we brought cows into our, into our villages, that was, that was a pretty cool thing, you know, wow, I can turn this cow out on grass. It gives me some milk, it gives me some, some meat. That's that's a good deal. 
you know, now in the 21st century, and we're looking at a lot of the environmental crises that we face, there's this, this very strange irony that those, those animals have this byproduct that is a, a very um, potent greenhouse gas emission. Recently on the show, I got a chance to ask Dr. Michael Greger a question related to uh, the pandemic. I asked him flat out, what would the net effect be on this pandemic if the entire world adopted a plant-based diet? I'm not going to ask you about the pandemic, but what would the net effect be on greenhouse gas emissions if the whole world adopted a plant-based diet? What do you think that impact could be? If we're just looking at greenhouse gas emissions, you know, I don't, I don't have a, a number off the top of my head. We, we can talk through some of the numbers, the, the estimates that we've looked at, um, at those, some of those um, reduction scenarios. Uh, you know, at a global level, I think it gets a little complicated because there are a lot of regions in the world where, um, where livestock play a very different uh, role, um, both in the, in the welfare, like the economic welfare, social welfare, as well as nutritional welfare of, of individuals, right? Um, of some of the, the poor um, parts of, of our, our global society. Um, so it becomes a, a bit more complicated question, which is, I think, why we in, in developed countries who have grown accustomed to to consuming large quantities of these high quality proteins like beef um, need to really consider our environmental impact. So, you know, just to talk through some of these scenarios, we, we said, well, what if, what, what would be the environmental impact if we substituted 50% of all animal-based foods in the U.S. diet with plant-based um, equivalents, you know, so... We looked at, you know, we, we threw beans and, and soybean and nuts and seeds and all those things kind of in the ratios that, that they show up in the vegetarian dietary recommendations um, and, you know, made, made an equivalent protein substitution of all the animal-based foods. So that's meats, dairy, eggs, um, fish and seafood. And what we found is that... Um, by by 2030, we said, okay, well, let, let's say it takes us till 2030 to, to, to get to that reduction. Um, the difference between a steady state of continuing to eat the diet we were eating currently and that 50% reduction in, in animal-based foods um, is on the order of 224 million metric tons of CO2 equivalents less per year. That means nothing to nobody. Um, <laughs> but if we put it in some other... Uh, in some other terms, it's 47 and a half million cars. It's equivalent to the emissions of taking 47 and a half million cars off the road. If we look at it in terms of the, the reductions that the U.S. needs to make in order to meet something like a, a Paris Agreement um, level uh, reduction, which, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll find ourselves in an administration that actually finds that important. Um, this 50% reduction in, in livestock emissions would represent 24% of the reductions that we need to make in order to meet a, a Paris Climate Agreement. 
And that's that's just taking us to basically half of us be. I mean, we can all we could say, okay, everyone is eating fifty percent less meat, or half of us are vegetarians. The rest of you can keep on eating the rest of the way you are. <laughs> or excuse me, yeah, I mean, I guess we have to go a bit farther than that, but it's significant. And then if we take it a step farther and say, okay, fifty percent all animal-based foods, but we drop beef to ninety percent, then that jumps up to 36% of the reductions necessary to meet those targets. The fact that you were able to quantify that really just, it it boggles my mind. Uh, You, sir, are far smarter than I could ever (laughs) pretend to be. Um, And I think, you know, to visualize the impact of our diet, I think, you know, would really help. And one of the things that you tipped me off to was a project that you teamed up with a a woman by the name of Laurie Frick. I believe that this is with uh, Google. Uh, yeah, art experiment. Talk to us a little bit about how this works. It's essentially you plug in your diet and you can see what the impact would be. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, we were approached by a, a data artist by the name of Lori Frick, as you mentioned. Um, she was interested in the work that we were doing. And, you know, what she does is takes big chunks of data from science or elsewhere where we have big chunks of data and then finds interesting ways to communicate that, that data in, a, in an artistic way. So she took the, our work, these, the contributions um, to the carbon footprint of individual diets, and did a little visualization with that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's available through a, a Google website. You can go there and check out all the individual diets in the U.S., um, you know, all, all the ones that, that we studied. 17,000 of them. Um, she also added some diets from the UK and uh, I don't know, France or Germany or what, whatever or something. So, so there's a few others in there, but you can go in and look at an individual diet and pull it apart and see where the contribution is from beef and then how much from the, the whatever spinach and peas and soda that that person had um, along with it. And it also has a, a, a segment where you can design your own diet and take a look at what the carbon footprint is of what you ate yesterday or what the, what the impact would be of a change in your own diet. So it's a pretty cool resource. Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go in there and I'm going to plug in my old diet when I was still eating 10,000 calories a day at 420 pounds and see just how different that looks compared to what it is my diet is today. I think yeah. that that, that could be quite fascinating. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you're right. You know, I mean, eating more calories obviously um, leads to a larger carbon footprint. Um, you know, coming back to this this difference between the high and low emission diets, we we did look at normalizing. So the, those high emission diets are, you know, two and a quarter times, um, are consuming two and a quarter times more calories than the low emission diets. If we normalize by that caloric intake, it drops from an eightfold difference to, to a fivefold difference. So even when we take just the, the flat calories out of the equation, still we see big differences in the composition of, of the diet. Cool. Dr. Martin Heller, you are just a fascinating individual. I have so enjoyed our time together here today, and you will be presenting at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, which is coming up August 6th through 8th for the first time ever, completely online. You can register now at pcrm.org slash ICNM. And if you want to take a look at this uh, art and compare your diets 
we're going to go ahead and we're going to drop a link to that in the episode notes for this very show as well. Dr. Heller, thank you so very much for your time, my friend. This has just been a real treat. Thank you, Chuck. It was fun. Why am I not surprised that the Burger King lemongrass experiment was more of a marketing ploy than anything else? The way that Dr. Heller was able to break all of that down was really fascinating to me. They really kind of made a reach with that 33%, didn't they? Yeah. So there is a lot more that Dr. Heller has to say. We left a lot on the table. But if you want to check him out at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine online for the very first time this year, coming up August 6th through 8th, as you heard, you can visit pcrm.org slash ICNM to register. And as an exclusive offer for exam room listeners, if you register using the promo code exam20, you will receive 20% off the cost of your ticket. That's exam room 20 as the promo code for 20% off your ticket to ICNM. And we put a link to register in the episode notes. That was graciously set up, by the way, by Dr. Neil Barnard's assistant, Natalie. So thank you, Natalie. Appreciate that. Exam 20 is your promo code for ICNM. Now, speaking of Dr. Barnard, he and Dr. Jim Loomis recently tag-teamed some of your questions on the Exam Room Live. Have you been watching the Exam Room Live? That's our daily live broadcast Monday through Friday on Facebook and on YouTube. And we are always answering viewer questions. So today on the show, we want to revisit one of the recent Doctor's Mailbag segments and dive into some questions like, does it matter? If cholesterol is high, if the bad cholesterol levels are low. And some other people wanted advice for vegans when it comes to vitamin A. And another person wanted advice for vegans when it comes to vitamin D because they're not getting a lot of sun. Somebody else was wondering whether cheese can be a carrier for COVID-19. Another person wanted to know about, can a plant-based diet help with autoimmune disorders, even if you have more than one of them? And then there's iodine. What can we do about iodine in the diet? How critical is that? Dr. Loomis will be weighing in in just a moment. So what do you say we get started and open up the doctor's mailbag right now? Dr. Loomis, are you there? You ready to rock and roll, my friend? Ready to go. Ready to go. All right. First question comes to us from Tina. She wants to know, does it matter if cholesterol is high when the rest of the values are good, such as triglycerides, LDL, HDL? Well, so the reason we worry about cholesterol to start with is we know it's a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And um, it's just one of many risk factors. So when we evaluate cholesterol, we, we look at all you know, really across the board, we look at your blood pressure and whether or not you smoke and how much you exercise and uh, whether or not you've got type 2 diabetes or prediabetes or whatever, because all of those are, are uh, risk factors. Um, ideally, uh, there's a lot of controversy about this, but, but, but if you look at the epidemiologic data, at least, we know that the lower the cholesterol, the better. And probably the optimum total cholesterol is about 150. Um, and the optimum LDL or bad cholesterol is probably is less than 75, um, somewhere in there. Um, 
The other thing we look at is HDL, which a cholesterol, which is uh, your good cholesterol. There, there are some times where, where, so the higher the good cholesterol, the lower your risk for heart disease. And, and I, we do see patients who have high total cholesterol, a good LDL cholesterol. But the reason their LDL, their total cholesterol is high is because their good cholesterol is high. Their HDL cholesterol is high. And, and, um, in general, it's considered a HDL greater than 60. Uh, provides a cardio, uh, it's cardioprotective. So especially in women, um, some women seem to be genetically predisposed to really high HDL levels, you know, 100 or something like that. And oftentimes you'll see an elevated total cholesterol along with the, 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 uh, along with the elevated HDL, but a normal LDL. Now, one thing though, um, HDL's job is, is reverse cholesterol transport. So what it does, it goes out in the, in the blood vessels and scavenges up cholesterol and takes it back to the liver to be metabolized. And there are instances where if you go on a very low-fat, high-fiber, plant-based diet, and you naturally get your, your total cholesterol down, typically in the 150 range, LDL down 50, 60 range, your liver will actually stop making HDL. And this actually happened to me in medical school. I was a marathon runner. Uh, my, my total cholesterol was a little high, you know, 210, somewhere in there. My, my LDL was a little borderline, you know, 110, 120, but my HDL was almost 80. Well, you fast forward, you know, 40 years or so where I'm also marathon runner plus my total cholesterol now is 150. My LDL is 50, but my HDL is only 38. And I exercise more now than I, I did then. And so that is something to be, uh, sometimes the cardiologist will get a little freaked out when they see this low HDL and they're going to want, you know, they want to put people on medicine and things like that, but, but uh, it's not a concern. All right. Next question, sticking with you, Dr. Loomis, Margaret on Facebook wants to know whether you can advise on vitamin A for vegans. What advice do you have? So um, in general, it's not, so in general, vitamin A is not a nutrient of concern in a vegan diet. Uh, vitamin A is a fat soluble diet. In fact, you have to be careful with vitamin A because you, we store, because it's fat soluble, we can store it, particularly in the liver. Interestingly enough, there are reported, so for example, polar bear liver is incredibly high in vitamin A. And, um, there's been recorded cases, um, of, um, Inuits and, in, in, um, who consume polar bear as part of their diet, uh, developing actually vitamin A toxicity, um, from the overconsumption of, of polar bear liver. So, um, you know, it's not a, it's not a supplement that you need to worry about. Um, if you're eating a, you know, beta carotene is a form of vitamin A, you know, it's in green leafy, it's in a, a, the more pigmented like orange, like carrots and things like that. Um, so in general, it's not a nutrient of concern a and B it's not something you really want to supplement with because your body can't, unlike some vitamins like vitamin C, which is water soluble. If you, once you've, taking enough vitamin C, you just make your urine more expensive by excreting the rest. We can't do that with vitamin A because it gets stored in our bodies. Dr. Barnard, coming to you for this next one. And I love this name. This uh, question from 1215, a follow-up to what it was you and I were just talking about. Green Vegan Grandma wants to know, what about cheese and other dairy products? Are they also likely to be carriers for COVID? Great question. Um, well, first of all, uh, whether it has COVID or not, cheese is the last thing that you want to bring in your house. And the reason for that is it's the number one source of saturated fat in the diet. And saturated fat 
is a contributor to cardiovascular disease. I'm talking about heart disease. And it's also appears to be a contributor to Alzheimer's disease. So whether it's got the viruses in addition, that's a problem. But you're thinking right. You're thinking about you've got a lot of people who might be preparing the cheese and the cheese tends to be refrigerated and that's an ideal temperature for carrying COVID-19. Um, I think you're right. Now, now having said that, the dairies do not seem to have the same issue that the slaughterhouses do with the huge numbers of known infections in the workers. So that's why we're especially concerned about the slaughterhouses. But cheese, nah, you don't want to have it in any case. All right, Dr. Loomis, we talked about vitamin A. Now let's talk about vitamin D. This one comes to us from Hannah on YouTube. I've been taking a vitamin D supplement since I live in a cloudy place and haven't been able to go outside very much because of the quarantine, but now I'm starting to feel a little nauseated. How often should I be taking this? Well, so um, vitamin D, as we've probably discussed before on this program, vitamin D, we call it a vitamin, really acts more like a hormone. And it's made in response to in, in our skin in response to the sun. And we need vitamin D for a variety of reasons. Probably most importantly, it helps it helps increase calcium absorption in our diets, which is important for strong bones. There are um, there are associations. It's not necessarily causation, but there are associations of low vitamin D with a variety of other uh, chronic conditions like depression and heart disease and some cancers. There seems to be an increased risk for COVID and both COVID risk and COVID severity with low vitamin D because it also plays a role in our immune system. Um, so in, in, in the practice here at BMC, we, we actually monitor, I typically will measure people's vitamin D level once a year or so. And if they're low, I supplement them appropriately. Um, it's not unreasonable, certainly, to, to take vitamin D, especially when you live in more northern climes where there's not enough sun to convert the, the vitamin D in your skin. Um, I usually recommend 2,000 IU, 1 to 2,000 IU of D3 once a day. Um, now, D3 comes in many forms, and um, uh, you want to be sure it's a – I think last week Dr. Barnard talked about uh, vegan D3 versus, you know, some of it's uh, derived from lanolin, which comes from sheep, sheep's wool, actually. Uh, there are vegan forms of vitamin D3, which is what, what I take. Um, but but it comes in many Form. So you can actually get drops that you put under your tongue, which are just as effective, which sometimes will uh, will um, um, get rid of some of the nausea uh, that 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 can occur with with any kind of a vitamin or supplement. Right, Dr. Barnard, coming to you for this one. A lot of people have autoimmune disorders. This question comes to us from Anne on Facebook. She writes, I have a number of autoimmune disorders, including Sjogren's and fibromyalgia, Barrett's esophagus, arthritis. I've been eating a whole food plant-based diet for two and a half years, and I'm wondering when the pain will ease, if it will ease. Oh, Chen, first of all, I'm sorry to hear that you're dealing with all of these issues. It sounds really uh, rough, and I'm sure it's also been a diagnostic puzzle and and you might not even be getting uh, very satisfactory answers from your doctor. So I'm really sorry to hear that you've been going through that. Um, at two and a half years, time's up. Um, so the diet changes that you've made, they're great. Going to a plant-based diet is the thing to do. Uh, but that's more than enough time to have given it a good try to see if it'll help you. So if it hasn't helped, now would be a good time to take a fresh look at your diet. And this, here's, here's the sequence that we use in research studies, and you can also use it clinically is you start by eliminating all animal products. You may have done that, but if not, make sure there's no uh, meat, no eggs, but especially no dairy. Uh, when we look at the studies on rheumatoid arthritis and others, the dairy proteins, for whatever reason, seem to be probably the worst actor. And they're not only in a glass of milk, 
but they're often ingredients in other foods. So you want to read the labels for things like casein or sodium caseinate. That's milk protein. Um, and then if that hasn't knocked out the symptoms, let's go one step or, uh, further to what I call elimin- an elimination diet. And there you eliminate all the big suspects of things that have caused sensitivities. That might include gluten, citrus fruits, wheat, other issues. Uh, and uh, these are foods that are normally well tolerated by folks, but you're going to give yourself a few weeks to see if you don't get better. You eliminate all those foods. And if, you're, if your symptoms have settled down, then you bring them back in one at a time to see which one triggers the pain. And I've written about this. I've, I've written the, kind of the recipe for this in a book called The Cheese Trap that you might have seen, where in the end of the book, because, because I'm encouraging people to get away from cheese, in part because of arthritis and other conditions, we show how to do an elimination diet. And let me encourage you to give it a try. All right. Uh, Dr. Loomis, final question is going to come to you. Uh, comes from 1223 on YouTube, Best Health Lifestyle. A person wants to know, what is the iodine daily recommendation and should we be supplementing with it? Yeah, so that's an interesting, it's a great question. And I think it is, iodine is one of the kind of overlooked nutrients of concern that, 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 um, uh, on a plant-based diet. It, it, and it's not because you're on a plant-based diet necessarily. Um, iodine gets into our food through the soil, um, in, in the foods that we grow. And over time, uh, in the, where most of our food is grown, the corn and the wheat in the Midwest, that soil has become depleted of iodine. And so in the, in the 30s, uh, they started to notice that a lot of people were developing iodine deficiency and, and developing goiters, you know, thyroid disease. So the government started to subsidize, they started to subsidize the salt companies to add iodine to table salt. So if you're using table salt, like Morton's table salt, you really don't have to worry about iodine because there's, you're getting plenty of iodine just from the, from, the, from the salt. It doesn't take very much, you know, half a teaspoon, uh, three quarters of a teaspoon is enough iodine. And by the way, you need 150 micrograms a day. That's that's the goal. Most people, when they move toward a plant-based diet or a healthier diet, one of the things they eliminate is salt or they switch to, you know, pink Himalayan salt or sea salt. Now, that's still salt. From a health standpoint, really no benefit from, from sea salt versus table salt. It's just we have this idea it's healthier, but but you still need to be careful about, about your salt intake just in general. But when you're using these other products, um, these other forms of salt, uh, you're not getting the iodine that you need. And I've had some patients who actually came in with things like brain fog and just not feeling all, you know, couldn't concentrate. And we put them on an iodine supplement and, and, and they got better because we iodine plays an important role in thyroid metabolism. We need iodine to convert, to make thyroid and then convert the T4 to the T3 in our tissue and things like that. So, um there, so there's several ways you, if, and I'm not recommending table salt by any stretch of the imagination, but but there are other sources of salt. So sea vegetables have lot have iodine. Um, so vegan sushi, for example, um, some people will get dulce or nori flakes, and you can put those on your, you can put those, you know, on in a salad or a soup. I think Bragg's actually makes a kelp shaker that you can shake onto your food. Um, what I do personally, I actually take a kelp supplement that has 150 micrograms of, of uh, iodine in it, um, and just to be sure I'm getting enough of iodine. So uh, you don't necessarily need to supplement the iodine uh, if you're diligent about using sea vegetables in your cooking. Um, and and you, they, they, 
again, they don't, you can use that and, and it doesn't make everything taste like seafood. Um, and, and a little bit goes a long way, uh, but, but it is an important nutrient to be concerned about. Thanks for asking that. You can join us Monday through Friday at noon Eastern for the exam room live. That's over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page and YouTube channel. I assure you, the show is, in fact, 100% live each and every weekday. And on each and every show, you get the opportunity to ask questions. Sometimes we take a whole bunch of them, like Dr. Barnard and Loomis just did. Some days we just take one. But the bottom line is every single day we get the opportunity to raise our health and our nutrition IQs. So if you have a question that you would like answered, go ahead and join us at noon Eastern over on Facebook or YouTube, or you can send them to us on Instagram and Twitter at Chuck Carroll WLC at PCRM or at Physicians Committee. Just make sure that when you send us those questions, you use the hashtag exam room podcast. Speaking of the exam room live, there's a big show recently looking at type 1 diabetes and plant-based diets. This is a great interview with Dr. Hanna Kaliova. She joined us to discuss an exciting case study that is sure to get a lot of people talking. So much is made of plant-based diets and the effect that it can have in reversing type 2 diabetes. So what then is the impact on type 1 diabetes? Well, this is a brand new case study that she is sharing with us. That will be on the exam room live. And you can watch the archives from previous shows also on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page and YouTube channel. And yes, indeed, there is a link to both in the episode notes. And in case you missed it, there is big news out of Florida. And that is that the Barnard Medical Center is now accepting patients there all done through telemedicine. You don't have to leave your house. And as we've heard, it is more important now than ever to focus on your health. As we record this, Florida is in the midst of a coronavirus explosion. Hospitals there are running out of room in their ICUs because of the immense amount of coronavirus patients. And no, we are not saying that you can cure the coronavirus by changing your diet. But what we do know is that a plant-based diet has been shown to greatly improve many of the comorbidities that have been proven to increase the risk of COVID-19. And the doctors and dietitians at the Barnard Medical Center can really help you out, really zero in on your diet because they focus on treating the cause of the problem and not just the symptom. We are talking about preventative medicine at its finest. And so to schedule an appointment, you can visit barnardmedical.org or pick up the phone and call 202-527-7500. 
And if you live in California or New York or Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, Missouri, Arizona, Colorado, Massachusetts, or Kentucky, any one of those locations, you too can make an appointment at the Barnard Medical Center over at barnardmedical.org or by calling 202-527-7500. That number and URL are both in the episode notes as well. And we are working on adding additional states in the very near future. And don't forget, 20% off ICNM using the promo code EXAM20. Join us for the International Conference on Nutrition in Medicine, August 6th through 8th, including a phenomenal presentation with today's guest, our professor, Dr. Martin Heller. And thank you to him for joining us. And thank you for listening. It's going to wrap things up. For Drs. Neil Barnard and Jim Loomis and everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>